Welcome to the Ideas on Stage podcast, your regular insight into leadership communication. Hey, Sean, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here, Andrew. Thank you very much for accepting our invite. Sean, I'd like to start with just a little bit of a curiosity. Well, it's not a curiosity, but now if I'm not wrong, please correct me if I'm wrong, but you are either Irish or at least you live in Ireland, right? Well, I'm, I'm Irish through and through, several okay. centuries and generations. So far. And for me, every time I hear Ireland, for me, it's special because my very first experience abroad was more than 10 years ago. I was still a student and it was in Ireland. And I lived in a small town for one year, Sligo. I don't know if you know Sligo. I know yeah. Sligo, yeah. It's a, lo- a lovely town over on the West Coast. Exactly. And I think Sligo has like maybe 20,000 people living there. It's a small town, but 15,000 of them are students. And so it was like, I, I loved it. It was the best experience of my life. So every time I have a connection with somebody who is either Irish or live in Ireland, that's special for me. Sligo is a beautiful place. I mean, and not only that, it's, it's got a depth of history that runs back thousands and thousands of years, but uh, it's just a gorgeous part of the world. Yeah. You, are in, you live in Dublin though, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, perfect. Another thing in common is Alan Stevens, because we, I interviewed Alan a few weeks ago, some time ago for, for the same podcast. And as I always do, I ask my guests, to just recommend other other guests. And Alan said, well, Andrea, you need to absolutely, absolutely, you need to talk to Sean. He's what he told me is one of the greatest storytellers around. <laughs> Probably the, the greatest storyteller around. And so today, Sean, I want to talk to you about communication, business communication, also in sales. But let's start with this. Let's start with storytelling. In your experience, why do you why do you pay attention to it? What what's the role of storytelling in effective communication? Um, well, I suppose Alan probably used the expression of describing me as the greatest storyteller around is that whenever I do a keynote presentation at a conference, it's usually framed or makes use of stories as a means of making that communication real and personal and emotionally engaging with people. So the benefits of stories and communication are multiple, really, because first of all, ever since we were children, we've learned to pay attention to stories, to listen when someone's going to tell us a story. So we often don't put up any critical barriers or analytical barriers of what people are saying when we start to tell a story. And I often talk when I'm running a presentation skills training for for people I would or, or, or coaching somebody who needs to be a speaker, I'll say, look, if, you, if, if you're not comfortable with stories, take a case study and then just add names to it. And all of a sudden it'll go from a cold case study to a warm story because people will automatically assume they relate to the character's experience, to that story arc of where they have problems, how they discovered it, how they resolved it. And the other benefit of stories is that not only are we conditioned to listen to stories in all of our cultures right across the world, and um, there's a powerful emotional pull to stories. And I think one of the issues about communication is communication, whether it's in leadership or in sales, is often very logically focused, which is fine. But it's not our logic that compels us to make decisions. It's our emotions. 
It's not the forebrain or the conscious brain or the analytical piece. It's the emotional state that we're feeling when it comes to making that decision. So, so stories within a presentation, a pitch, a speech, whatever, are very powerful ways of stimulating, of, 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 of exciting, of warming up, if you will, the emotional state or neurology of the individual, therefore making them more open to being influenced by us. Uh, Sean, because you mentioned emotion, in preparation for this conversation, I had a look at a lot of your content online. You've got lots of very interesting and insightful videos on YouTube recommended to everybody. And you, there was one video about, or, or at least it was an article on your website about the role of the importance of emotion in, in communication. So I would like to explore this a little bit deeper you also talked about i think the fact that today we always talk about usps right unique selling points which is one thing it's one element but it's not enough right and you also talked about the connection between emotion in communication and how that helps you get and gain and keep the audiences the listeners attention yeah, I, I think if we look at most of our communication, whether it's leadership communication or sales communication, and you gave a very good example of these unique selling points, for example, that are still used in selling, uh, but no longer work, um, is classic examples of how we tend to communicate logically. If you look at an organization's story or backstory or presentation or anything that they do, uh, first of all, it's always them-centric. Right. And second of all, it's always about logic. We have 5,000 people working for us. We're across three continents, blah, blah, blah. There's, there's only one thing people are thinking when you say that now, and that's so what? Who cares? You know, um, more specifically, so what? What does that do for me? Um, and so what we have to do is we have to start looking at things from a very different perspective. Communication, I like to say, is actually really modern communication is made up of three elements. You've got to connect with people you got to influence people and you got to engage people. So it's not just let me shout at you and you pick up what I'm telling you. That's communication, but it's not very effective communication. Let me find a way to connect with you. Let me find a way to influence you. Let me find a way to engage you. And the only way you can do that is, is twofold. One, you focus on the person you're communicating with, be it a client or a team member or whatever, and you find a way to influence and access their emotional state. Um, part of my training is as a an analytical hypnotherapist and as a psychotherapist. So I know something about the conscious and unconscious levels of awareness in the brain. And the one thing I can tell you, and in fact, it was, it was researched by Cranfield University that most of our business decision-making is 90% dependent on our emotional level of engagement, which means that all those wonderful logical messages were given to people only have a 10% chance of a decision being made on that. We have to find ways, whether we're using language, whether we're using stories, whether we reframe messages such as USPs in ways that make them more emotionally compelling. How do we do that? First of all, we focus on the client's needs, really understand what I call their UPPs, their unique, unique universal pain points, right? It, the most powerful way to influence someone is to say, I recognize your pain, I can take it away. Very powerful. But we've got to turn these unique selling points, which are all very logical, into ones that are relevant and pertinent to individuals. So I talk about concepts called PCORs, points of compelling relevance. And really what that is, is a process whereby you take your USP, which is like something like, we're a one-stop shop. I mean, there's a classic cliche USP, right? And you talk about us being, well, actually, you make one call and we save you an enormous amount of time and convenience because 
we're a one-stop shop. So what we have to do is take those USPs and interpret them in a way that's meaningful to the client's challenges. And when you do that, you now you have the emotional reason, convenience, saving time, ease, all the values that matter to people. And then because, and then the logical reason why we can do it, which is the one-stop shop idea. So this is, we have to learn how to shape our language differently and how we make our communication points or our sales points differently so that we emotionally engage. And there's one primary reason why we need to do that now, Andrea, as opposed to in the past. And that is in the world today, it's about the war for attention. Mm. And I talk about share of attention equals share of wallet or share of influence. And the challenge that we have, and a lot of people say, you know, people are losing the ability to focus, their attention spans are getting smaller. That's not the case. The case is the level of distraction is increasing. People are perfectly capable of focusing for as long as they want, provided they're interested in what you have to say. So, so this move from just purely logical, technical expertise-based messages to messages that lead with the emotional compelling aspect, which speaks to the child inside, the eight-year-old, simple language, concise, all that stuff. And then allied with the logical message is how we create modern, powerful communications uh, messages and tools. A couple of things you mentioned which are super important and really resonate uh, with me. If I think about what we do at Ideas on Stage, for us, it's all about presentation skills, public speaking. For example, in a presentation, you mentioned the so what. Absolutely. It's not just the what. That's okay. That's one thing. But the so what, why should they care? Why is the what relevant and important to them, to the audience, to the listener? And then also you mentioned, again, the importance of making your communication, whatever it is, it could be a presentation, it could be a one-to-one -one sales conversation, whatever, making it relevant, related to the audience. Yeah. Sean, let's park this for now. Let's talk about communication, like top level. I, I heard you say that, and I agree with you 100%. You say that if we, if we look at what's going on today in the world with things like automation, artificial intelligence, technology, all these kind of things, because of that, actually communication becomes even more important. Could you, could you please expand on, on your view? Yeah, um, a lot of the work that I do, Andrea, is coaching people who are experts to become influencers. So in other words, you have people who are financial leaders, accountants, technology people, even lawyers, whatever, people who have, who have a great depth of expertise uh, and highly competent in that. But what I see time and time again is they get overlooked because they don't know how to communicate that expertise or to project their value at an individual level, at a team or a board level or whatever the case may be. And now what we're finding is AI, particularly since the advent of COVID and the move into this hybrid age, where we now have to manage both clients and teams at a distance, which is not gonna go away, it's gonna be the future, that the expertise piece, particularly the more senior they are, is actually less important than their capacity to be able to connect, influence and engage with other people. In fact, there's a couple of primary skill sets that people in that space need to have in order to future-proof their careers against AI, because what's going to happen with AI, AI is going to provide the expertise. AI is going to do the transactional stuff. AI is going to manage the processes. So we won't need people who are just experts anymore because that will be encoded into the algorithms of the AI. 
So where do people become valuable? <clears throat> Excuse me, where do people future-proof their careers? It comes down to their ability to manage, engage, influence, connect, involve with the people around them. So it's, can I communicate my expertise in a way that's meaningful to people? So what? What does it do for me? Um, can I do, can I collaborate with my team members? Can I co-create with them? Can I communicate and coach with them? These are going to be the fundamental skill sets of leadership um, in the world that is evolving right now. Yeah. Because there will come a time when no matter how expert you are, if I don't know you, I don't like you, and I don't trust you, I won't give you a chance to deploy that expertise. And, and you'll find that in the past, in the old command and control model of leadership, expertise is what got you to the top. In the modern form of leadership, which is about service, which is what I call the feminine form, which is about synergy, collaboration, networking, um, co-creation, what will help you get to the top. Yes, you'll need expertise to get to a certain level, but beyond that, it's gonna be how well you can communicate and influence big people. Uh, just to, to finish this point, I, I often coach senior leaders around a concept called that I call the game. The game is when you get to a certain level in a corporate organization or a large firm and your expertise is not what's important now. What's important now is what I call the four Ps. Can you build a profile or a brand, something you stand for? Can you, um, can you get that promote? Can you get it positioned in all the right places to the right stakeholders? Can you get promoted on the basis of doing that successfully so you're recognized for the value that you bring? And then lastly, can you manage the politics as a result of the fact that you got promoted over somebody else? <laughs> politics, yeah, I, I can imagine politics play a big part, especially in certain organizations. And, and Sean, again, from a communication perspective, because you said that you work a lot with people in financial and technological roles, it could be accountants, lawyers. So let's say people who often need to communicate technical or complex information. In your experience, what are some of the key communication challenges and obstacles, particularly when it comes to technical or complex information? Um, well, we talk about the challenges in communicating or the challenges that the individuals communicating it have. Let's focus on the challenges the individuals tend to have. Um, and I'm sure you've seen these yourself, Andrew, in terms of the work that you do uh, in your own firm. But a classic one is where an expert of any kind, legal, accounting, finance, technology, whatever, is scheduled to give a presentation. And the first thing they do is they rely on the deck to do the presentation for them. So the deck is covered in text. It's got everything you don't need up there. The ands, these, a's, the whole thing. It's like they took a page and transcribed it onto the deck, right? And so then they do the second problem. The second problem is they turn around and start to read the deck. So now they've lost the people's attention. People are now reading ahead of them, so they want to move forward a lot quicker with the process. Some people are overwhelmed, and immediately they've just lost the process. Um, so a lot of it is about minimizing, 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 and realizing that the purpose of a deck is people don't build a relationship with your presentation. They build a relationship with you. And that you're the person who needs to come across. And, and the second thing I tend to come across is a lot is around confidence. And I often talk about, you know, competence comes before confidence. If you know how to do it, if you know how to manage audience questions, you know how to deal with difficult people, you know how to structure your presentation, you do this stuff, all that is, becomes really, really important. Um, but the most important thing to realize about 
their confidence when they get in there is you are an expert. You know this stuff. There's not a question they can ask you that you can't handle anyway. And even if you can't handle it, there are ways of dealing with it so you still look competent. So that's another big issue. So I often talk to them about, and, 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 the, and I suppose the third element is, and again, it is just, it's really classic traditional presentations which does not work with modern audiences. You put your cover slide up and then the first slide that comes up there tells them all about your company or you. Nobody cares, right? It's a classic traditional thing. I'm gonna inform them all about us. Here's what people care about. What are you gonna do for me? How are you going to do it? And if you manage to meet those two questions, then you can tell me why I should work with you. But you know what? If you do it right, you have me sold at what? So, so it's very much about the format of the presentation also needs to be. And you'll see things like, like one of the things I, I advise people to do, if you've got an overly complex, say, diagram, which a lot of technical experts do, or even an org chart, instead of putting the whole thing up there and confusing the hell out of people, build overlays. Do the top tier, then fade it out on the next slide. You've got the next tier with a different color, then fade it out on the third one. You go, because people can only process in bits of information now. So you've got to make it easy for people. But, but there's a whole range of things. But, but the tendency is to, I suppose, to put someone up in a very simple thing. It's something I learned many years ago, which was one of the best things I ever learned when it came to training and teaching people. And it said, don't teach them what you know. Teach them only what they need to know. And it's a really, really powerful principle for experts of any kind when it comes to giving a presentation, whether it's an in-house presentation to a team, to an individual, or a lot of cases, it becomes even more challenging if they have to do it at a conference level, where they might have an all-hands type situation, or they've got a couple of thousand people in the room. That's when it becomes even more important. But they would be the main things, I would say. Yeah. And if I were to summarize what you described, to me, the key word you used is simplicity. The ability to simplify not just your deck. Of course, that's I agree with you 100%, Sean. That's important because the typical death by PowerPoint doesn't work. People can't read the listen at the same time. But also, you talked about the ability to simplify your message. Yeah. I don't know about, about you, Sean, what you think about it, but... Uh, I, I often see one of the obstacles I see is that, and especially if you are in a technical role, you know so much about your subject and you are also so close to it that you think that everything is important, right? You need to communicate everything. But I think if everything is important, then for the audience, nothing is important. But you have a problem where you create overwhelm right? Which is why I went back to the point of it. Don't teach them what you know. Teach them only what they need to know. Simplicity is also important for a couple of reasons, and that includes simplicity of language. Because, you know, there are, as I said earlier, two levels of awareness in the brain. There's the conscious part of the brain, which is the bit that needs to do the thinking, the analysis, the logic, the sequence, the order, and all that sort of stuff. And then there's the unconscious, which can be likened to like an eight-year-old child, basically. And it, it only does simple stuff that's fun, and it's rewarding and it's easy to understand. And I mentioned the, uh, the importance of the emotion when it comes to making decisions. If you want to convince people, if you want to be a convincing presenter, 
Keep your words as simple as possible because it requires less brain power to process or analyze and understand what people are what you are saying, which makes it easier for me to accept what you're saying if you use simple language. Plus, you're more likely that everybody else understands what you're saying at the same time, which makes you a more compelling, influential and engaging uh, presenter at the end of the day. The, absolutely. And the often what happens is the opposite because we want to try and use complicated, complex language because we think that then that will make us look smart, whereas it's actually the opposite. But re yeah. real expertise is the capacity to take comp complex concepts and break them down into simple lessons. Yeah, you, you made me th that's genuine expertise. You made me think of a book I, I read many years ago and uh, I found it very interesting. Why business people speak like idiots. <laughs> and, it, and it was all about this idea that you've just described. Sean, also, as we are having this conversation, I see a book there, The Highly Trusted Advisor. And I, I know that you talk a lot about trust and also in sales. So if we think about sales, I know that you talk a lot about the difference between being a salesperson and a, a highly trust advisor. Yeah. which I guess is the content also of that book. Can, can you tell us more about this idea? Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. I think one of the first and most important things we need to understand about sales is that I often call it an, an accidental profession. Like nobody when they were seven years old says, I want to be a salesperson, right? <laughs> and even if you did, you know, your parents talked you out of it because that was never going to happen, right? Because selling is still viewed as a sort of a low status career, if you will. Right, there's still this old fashioned notion uh, before sales became codified and structured and professionalized that um, it was high pressure. It was, you know, you're going to buy this whether you liked it or needed it or want or, or whatever, this is going to happen. So it was sort of um, bottom feeder, uh, high pressure, insincere, distrustworthy. And this, and this, this concept still exists in people's mind, right? It's still there. It's, not true because obviously people involved in selling now are our accountants and lawyers and technical people and all kinds of people doing it now doctors you know whatever very educated people but but this concept still persists but the interesting thing is it still persists persists in the minds of sales teams as well because when i run the high trust advisor program with people anyone you know the first one we have one called mindset motivation and messaging which deals with the communications piece I ask, I would ask a team, give me the words you, you, that your clients would use to describe the stereotypical salesperson. And of course, they're thinking about it. So it's their perception. And out comes the words, you know, uh, sleazy, liar, uh, smarmy. <laughs> I said, keep going. We, you know, this is a great therapy session. Let's get it off your chest, right? <laughs> and then when I asked them, okay, now give me the words you associate with being an advisor. And they'll say trustworthy, a guide, an expert. So straight away, the simple shift from the perception of a salesperson. And it's interesting because the word sales comes from a word which means to be of service. That's the original root word means to be of service. But to shift it to being an advisor, there's a radical change, not just psychologically, but physiologically in the people you're working with. And then I say, well, we don't try and sales people here. 
we train highly trusted advisors, people who can go beyond simple trust to a place where there's no boundaries, no limitations, no restrictions whatsoever. They own, if you will, the, 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 the psycho space between the two ears of the client or the person they're working with and deal with them in an eth ethically and mutually beneficial way. And that's what the training covers. Sean, why is it that, I don't know if you agree, but if you don't, please let me know. But I think that most people, or let's say a lot of people, hate to sell. And why, for example, you mentioned that even sales teams tell you, okay, what, what word comes to mind? Okay, salesy or pushy or aggressive. And, and of course, we don't want that. Based on your experience, why is this the case? Why is it the most people, what are the key things that prevent a lot of people from actually loving that, that activity, that profession? Well, well actually, there, if, uh, if your listeners want to go there, I actually have an article on the nine reasons why professionals hate to sell, which is available. You can read it on the, on the, the homepage of the website. But a lot of it is about people lose the idea that this is about finding people who have a challenge, exploring that with them and then providing the solution to them, right? Uh, and if you haven't got a solution saying, thank you for your time and moving on. Selling is about creating relationships to find a way that you can be of service to other people. And then you simply monetize that service, you know? Um, I mean, I define selling along the lines that selling is the ability to, uh, engage the emotional state of the client so that you can influence their logical decisions for the transfer of goods, services, and money for the mutual benefit of both parties. I think the mutuality piece is what people forget about. People have this old tradition, conditioned cultural notion that selling is about me pushing something on you instead of what selling really is about me connecting with you, identifying what your challenges are, if any. If you don't have any, I say thank you very much and I'll walk away. Uh, or identifying that you have challenges, me demonstrating, you know, it's like I said to you earlier, I find out what your pain is and I, and I show you I can resolve the pain. You're actually doing a service to people and then you just, you get paid for your time. You get, you get monetized. That's what selling is about. Selling is fundamentally about <clears throat> creating relationships and solving problems for people. And maybe you mentioned that already in your answer, but because you mentioned your article that people can find on your yeah. website, the nine reasons why, why people hate to sell. Um, can you, unless you've covered it already in your answer, can you tell us maybe like the, the key, no, not all of them, of course, but maybe let's say the, the, the three key things that, that come to mind. Well, I didn't read it before I came on here. So <laughs> I would say, well, a couple of things is one is this stereotypical concept that somehow selling is a low status and high pressure thing. Nobody wants to come across as salesy. Nobody wants to come across as pushy. Most mm. of us are quite normal human beings. We just want to get along with people. We don't want to, we don't want to come across that way because we can, I mean, quite rightly, I mean, that's not a, something we want to attach to ourselves and our reputation, our profile, completely understandable. Um, but you have to learn that it's not about that. It's about finding people who need you. And if you find people who need you, well, that's not about pushing stuff on them. It's about them coming and asking you, what can you do for me, right? So that'd be one of them. There's this, this fear of being seen as salesy or pushy or um, some way unprofessional, which perfectly, nobody would want to be in that space. The second thing tends to be around the issue of facing rejection. 
being rejected. Now, rejection, fear of failure and rejection are both linked together, right? We don't want to fail because we're afraid of being rejected. And we don't want to be rejected because that goes against the basic human need, which is about acceptance. It's the same reason most people are poor at networking. They don't want to go and work the room and talk to people because they're afraid of being salesy, they're afraid of being seen pushy, and most importantly, they're afraid of being rejected. Nobody likes to be rejected, right? But you can learn, so networking is a strategy, not a hope, right? There's a methodology, a process. So the second reason is about being rejected. I mean, I often say that, you know, salespeople live lives of constant rejection, interspersed by moments of blissful triumphs. That's the key. So and true. that's about, you know, it's like a doctor, you know, you, you don't use the same medicine for every patient. You know, you, you don't use a scalpel for every ailment, right? You, you identify the people you want to work with, the people you can be of service of, and you only focus on them. So, so, so the piece about being afraid of being seen as salesy or pushy, the fear around rejection. And I think the third one is competency. Um, you know, most people assume that, you know, you see a lot of extroverts or semi-extroverts in sales because they can talk, right? But that's not what selling's about, right? Selling's about asking. It's about listening. I mean, it's the old salesman's prayer. I have two ears and one mouth. Oh Lord, please help me to use it in that ratio, right? Um, but you'll see nervous new salespeople and all they use talk, 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 talk. Well, why wouldn't a professional, an expert or a legal or an accounting person be nervous of that, right? But the reality is, that selling, there's a whole competencies around selling, which is about asking, engaging, suggesting, not talking. Because ultimately being, if you want to be of service to somebody, if you want to sell to somebody, you've got to understand where they're at, what's with it with them. And here's the beauty about that. In a world where people are more and more busy about themselves, a person who gives you time, attention, interest, and engagement will always be valued by the other person. And there, the fundamental differences from being your classic traditional salesperson, which still exist because the training still produces them, to being a highly trusted advisor that people want to spend time with. It makes a lot of sense. And I would love, Sean, to explore just in a little bit more detail the second point you mentioned, the fear around rejection. Because as you said, in the end, it doesn't matter how how great you are as a communicator or it doesn't matter how great your product or service is you will receive some if you if you work in sales somebody will say no it will not be a hundred percent yes so how do you go about it how do you deal with no in selling well there's two specific ways that you do that one is um was it appropriate for you to be speaking this? Was it appropriate for you to be speaking to this person in the first place? So, are you trying to shoe on a solution they have no need for? They were the wrong client, the wrong profile, the wrong need. They didn't have a pain. They didn't have an issue. So, if you do it that way, when they say no, you should say thank you very much. Good luck, right? Because you shouldn't have been there in the first place. Yeah. You, you didn't plan that engagement well enough, right? Now. The second reason which I teach people on, on my course is when people say no to you, no is another objection. At least the first time you hear it anyway. I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to keep pushing them, keep getting no's and no's until you're dropped kicked out of the window. You know, that's not appropriate, right? But you do want to at least cover off on the first no. Now, the problem with this is that when people hear no, most professionals, let's say 
partners in practice, for example, right? They're there because of their expertise. They just say, oh, thanks very much. They'll walk away, right? Um, or even a lot of professional salespeople here know they go, oh, okay, thanks very much, and off they go, right? Instead of realizing, like any objection, it indicates the person's interest. You just haven't demonstrated value or you haven't dealt with their particular concern. So I normally give people a particular piece of language that they can use because language structure is very important when you're looking to influence people. I love this. I'm looking forward to that particular type of language. Yeah. <laughs> well, here it goes. So pay attention, right? So you would say, they say no to you. And then you say, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. May I ask, right? Because you're going to ask a question, why? Which can be a very blame or accusing question. So you have to soften it. So you pre-frame it saying, may I ask why? And then you use the word specifically. So you're looking for the particular reason. Specifically, you are saying no on this occasion, meaning it's only this occasion. It does mean you'll say no again in the future. So may I ask why specifically on this occasion you're saying no, right? And the tone drops at the end because when it drops at the end, it's you're not saying no, you're saying no. So it's a command and authoritative tone when you say it. And if you use that question in that way, people will tell you the real reason they've said no, because mm -hmm. there's always a real reason. No is only a cover for a real reason. And that reason is we don't have the budget. Um, I'm not the person who makes the final decision. Uh, it's not the right time for us. But a no is, used, is always a cover for something more specific. Now, once you've identified what it is, you can go back into the conversation. You can suggest ways in which they can overcome that objection. Um, and, and, and you're back in the game again. I mean, you can increase your closes by 300% if you just use that simple technique. I love that. That's a, that's a powerful, powerful technique. And something similar I read, I think it was on your LinkedIn profile, Sean, was a, a tip that you gave for how to close a deal. Mm -hmm. And I think you called it like a, a convincer question. Yeah. It's yeah. called a value convincer question. So again, I, I think what's what's coming out of this, Andrea, which is really important, is the um, power of language has when you work with people, and, and language is something I put a lot of emphasis on because it can it can change how people think, how they react, and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, so a value convincer question is a question, a closer question, if you want to call it that, or a call to action question, um, is a question that you can use if you want someone to do something for you make a decision, take an action, do a thing. But do you remember earlier I mentioned the importance of linking emotion to an outcome, right? So let's say I'm talking to you and we, we've had our conversation and I said, and then I summarize my conversation with you or I summarize the benefit or the value of my conversation or with the team. So as a result of this, if we do this, Andrea, right, what's going to happen is the team is going to be 50% more effective. We're going to reduce timekeeping issues and we're going to really build and project our, our presence across that. Okay. So can I ask you a question? How valuable would it be if we just got the paperwork out of the way to make that happen? Mm. So you're smiling now, but you're smiling to something that isn't even real for us because what you've done is when I said, how valuable would it be if we're using what's called soft language, which diminishes threat, you are now thinking about the value to you personally by doing the thing I asked. 
get the paperwork out of the way, deliver on Friday, call a team meeting, whatever it is. So I've automatically, by summarizing, first of all, put you in a positive state. Second of all, I've asked a question which takes your emotion in because you're thinking about the value to you personally if the team was able to do all this. And then I linked that with an action I wanted you to take. You know, get the, So how valuable would it be then, Andrea, if we got the paperwork out of the way and made a start on the project? How valuable would it be if we got this delivered next week? How valuable would it be if we organized a pilot project? How valuable would it be whatever the action is? Very effective on a one-to-one -one basis. You'd usually only position it after you'd summarize any benefits that you were talking about, but it can work with a group as well. I love it. You paint, you also paint a picture in the listeners' mind. Well, actually, mind. you paint your own picture in your own mind, which is even more powerful. Yeah, yeah. I don't even have to know why it's valuable to you. You just worked out why it's valuable to yourself and associated it with the, uh, the action I want you to take. Yeah. Great. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Sean, for, for sharing those tips and techniques. Perhaps a couple of final questions. One is a question, it's just a curiosity I always like to, to ask our guests here on the podcast, which is, I love reading, I love books, I don't know about you, Sean, but if you think about everything we've discussed today, could be communication, sales communication, business communication, everything we've discussed, is there one book or if you've got more, that's fine. But at least like one book that you would recommend for, for listeners. Well, in terms of, I mean, there are lots of books, lots of really good books, but lots of really good authors, okay? Um, if, if I may, I'll, I'll, I'll do a blatant plug <laughs> for my own, if I may. And there's actually three books of mine that actually relates to pretty much everything we've been talking about. The first one is the highly trusted advisor, which we spoke about, which is how to lead teams and win clients in the hybrid age. So it's how do we project our influence and engagement at a distance. The other one is one called coaching as a side hustle. It's just an interesting type, but it's fundamentally the leadership skills and management skills we need to be effective leaders today, which is about how do we learn to coach, collaborate, co-create, and what's the methodology and process by which we do that. And the last one, which is an interesting one, is called invoking the feminine. Mm, which is something you mentioned before, right? Yeah. So I mentioned about how leadership has moved from being um, masculine command and control expertise base to where it's now much more feminine, inclusive, collaborative. Um, I won't use the word softer because that's not really appropriate because the feminine can be very harsh indeed, right? But it's about um, learning how we can adapt. Uh, for example, part of my background is martial arts. So we have the concept of yin and yang, soft and hard styles, balance. It's all about balance. And in leadership today, we as males and females need to understand, recognize and respect the feminine energies and feminine traits in order to balance what we do. Because for the vast majority of leaders, the command and control is now only relevant if somebody joins an organization needs to be told what to do or is leaving an organization where the motivation is gone and need to be told what to do. For the vast majority of people who have expertise and knowledge, we need to engage them in a collaborative coaching, consultative, co-creative way. So, so the book Invoking the Feminine talks about that. It's, it's a really simple book, little story between a father and a daughter. She's lost her mother, she's struggling, and then he takes her through his understanding of aspects of Celtic spirituality and spirituality, which helps her understand the power and the strength in, in the traits and elements of the feminine. But it, it ties into personal and business leadership as well. That takes us back to the very first question I asked you about storytelling, because if I understood well, even that book, 
you communicated your message through a story. Yeah, it's all it's it's a, it's like a little little fictional novel to read, but it's grounded in strong Celtic uh, values. And uh, actually, goes back to your very first question, which is about was I actually Irish or not? So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, if somebody wants to get in touch, what what should they do? Just visit. Um, there's lots of resources and stuff available at my website, seanweefer.com. Um, go there, have a look. If you want to do a complimentary coaching session with me, there's a facility to do that. If you want to have a, a consultation with me or just a 15-minute virtual coffee to talk about anything, right, in terms of whatever, I'm, I, I'm always a great believer in doing hot coffees, not cold calls. So, you know, spend 15, 20 minutes with me. I'm happy to talk to anybody anywhere, anytime. So just reach out to me over the website. Great. And is there anything else, Sean, if you... Again, anything else, any final, mess final message you'd like to share with the audience? Or maybe is there a question that you hoped I asked you, but I didn't do it? And anything else you'd like to share with the audience? I think it's there. I, I think it's, um, um, and people are free to connect with me on LinkedIn as well. I love to connect with people on LinkedIn. Um, I suppose the only thing is that we have a new project, two new projects starting in September. We have a coaching school that's been launched called G2S Coaching, which is based on the coaching I designed about 25 years ago. So if people want to train as coaches, either as managers or they're experts who want to create a solution service business, they could check out g2scoachingschool.com. And the other one is something you and I discussed before the formal recording, which is where I'm bringing martial arts into business leadership, which is where we're creating a new uh, membership mastermind group, if you will, for selected leaders and business owners called Business Dojo. App. So it's all available online. It's a mastermind group where they get access to other experts or sensei, as we call them, from all over the world, uh, where they get to network on their phone, literally with guys. We have a geolocation facility. If you travel to wherever, you can check on your phone where people are at or members. You can hook up for a green tea or whatever. So that's just a new project. So it's just um, some interesting stuff going on. If you want to find out about those, just reach out to me, as you said. That's what martial arts. I need to say this because when I asked you a few weeks ago to send me a a, a profile photo for for us oh. to be able to market, <laughs> I loved it because you sent me your two photos. One was your martial art uh, photo. That was great. I love yeah, it. Well, I, I got, I'm sometimes known as the coaching sensei as well. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. fantastic, Sean. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot. I'm sure that our audience, our listeners, have enjoyed it and learned a lot as well. Thank you very much again, and let's keep in touch. My pleasure. Thank you, Andrea. If you enjoyed this episode of the Ideas on Stage podcast, there are many more you might like. So please subscribe, leave us a review, and tell us what you think. You can find many more ideas on business communication at ideasonstage.com or by searching for Ideas on Stage on iTunes, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and goodbye for now.